Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, the podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. And as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. And the NFL is back. Here we are. We are uh, taping this the day after the opening game between the Bucks and the Cowboys. Uh, this episode will drop right after the first big Sunday here. And I got to imagine you're you're looking forward to uh, that full slate of games here uh, on Sunday. Absolutely. And I watched the game last night in a sports bar with a friend who's a Cowboys fan. He was not very happy with the outcome, but it was definitely a great game and a good kickoff of the year. Absolutely. And so that gives us uh, sort of an opening here. It's going to be a very uh, special NFL-focused episode here as we uh, get uh, started with the uh, 2021 regular season. A lot happening in and around the league as it uh, begins this new campaign. So uh, pretty much all the news of the week here that we're going to be focusing on is NFL-related. But first, we got a really uh, special interview with John Kozner, and a lot of folks here uh, listening to the podcast probably know John. From, he's been in the business uh, for decades, very long and celebrated run at ESPN, has also been with uh, several of the other networks, the NBA, Sports Illustrated. John's been around, he's seen a lot, he's done a lot, and he's going to spend some time with us to talk about uh, some of the things he's now doing, uh, particularly in the investment and advisory world. So stay tuned for that conversation. And- And then Chris and I will be back on the other side for a lot of NFL talk. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, John Kozner, president of Kozner Media, a New York-based digital media and sports consultancy. Kozner, a four-decade veteran of sports media and technology, has been a highly active investor and advisor with sports-related startups, working with numerous major entities, including wearable technology provider Whoop, digital sports media network Overtime, athlete marketing platform Open Doors, and analytics outfit Shot Tracker, among many others. Kozner has also worked in close collaboration with many other prominent industry figures, including the late NBA Commissioner Emeritus David Stern, and Desser Media President Ed Desser. Prior to forming Kozner Media, Kozner spent 21 years at ESPN playing a critical role in turning the U.S. media giant into the world's preeminent digital sports destination and also held senior roles at Sports Illustrated, the NBA, CBS Sports, and NBC Sports. John, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Chris. So let's uh, just kind of start at the uh, beginning here of your current uh, situation here. You've got your own shingle with Kozner Media. You know, we've known each other a long time and obviously uh, got to know each other during your run at ESPN. But as you were pivoting from that role into this one, how did that get going and where do you kind of see Kozner Media operating in the overall ecosystem? So, and again, I appreciate from your SBJ days, Eric, all the coverage of what we did at ESPN. I was always trying to get more coverage from Eric or, or a positive spin on whatever the news of the day was. But <laughs> I had a great run at ESPN. I was there for over 20 years, but it came to an end in June of 17, which was a surprise, at least to me. And the first person who called me after the news was out was David Stern. And David had been my boss at the NBA I've been in charge of broadcasting at the NBA during the Dream Team era, 
So for those of you listening, if you watch the great Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN, those were all my years, and I was at many of those games. David had retired from the NBA after 30 years and had become a venture capitalist. He's working with Alan Patrikoff at Graycroft Partners. He's working with Paul Taubman, the banker. And he had started calling me very, very frequently in my last couple of years at ESPN because he had met many talented entrepreneurs. He wanted to get them meetings at ESPN. In certain cases, he wanted to find out what it was these companies did. So we had sort of reunited after 25 years or so. And David's message to me was that the work he was doing, placing small investments and advising these little sports tech startups had been more fulfilling than he had expected. And he thought that I should think about it. So I thanked him for the call. And over the next several months, I had a variety of discussions with other companies about other full-time positions. And in each case, something wasn't quite right. And I was resolved that I wasn't going to do this exact same thing that I had done in the past. And what I was going to try to focus on were opportunities that I felt passionately about working with people who I liked and respected. And while that's seems sort of, you know, straightforward. Who wouldn't want to do that? In life, it's not always easy to do that. And David and I began to do work together about six months after I left ESPN. And it evolved into an arrangement where I basically managed his family office, for want of a better expression, for two years. David had started investing in sports tech startups, and we went from having 10 to having 15 different investments focused in media, betting, player health. David informed me that he could care less about esports. So I said, well, that's fine. We don't have to invest in esports. There's there's plenty of other things to do. And I learned several things from David in my second go-round with him. I certainly learned a lot in the first as well. But David was a really, really good judge of people and a really, really keen sense about market opportunities, size of markets. And David didn't really want to read many decks. He didn't study spreadsheets. And in that way, our interests were kind of complementary because I like sort of getting into the details. And I got to work with David for two years. David, is, as we know, had a cerebral hemorrhage in December of 2019. He passed away on New Year's Day 2020, so over 18 months ago. But I've continued the work that he began. And I probably spend half to two-thirds of my time working with small companies, really bright entrepreneurs, in that sort of intersection of sports, media, and technology. And um, I've always been someone who's wanting to look ahead. I've always been someone who's appreciated getting to work with really smart people and has been surprised, has been rewarding. And to be honest, I didn't know what to expect the next chapter would be. I thought I was going to get a new deal at ESPN. And the way it's turned out, I will say there's there's that old expression like things work out for a reason. It's, It's been better for me. It's been better for my family the way things have worked out. 
John, we've uh, spoken on the podcast to a number of entrepreneurs who are in your portfolio, who have worked with you, who have worked with David, and a number of them are just so passionate about the experience that they had with David, surprised by how intensely interested he was in their business. Can you talk a little bit about that, how he interacted with the entrepreneurs in, in your companies? Yeah, I mean, David was a Proskauer attorney litigator who came into the NBA as general counsel and basically revolutionized the NBA, revolutionized the role of commissioner, the role of so sports and society. And He's somebody who, incredible work ethic, true intellectual curiosity. There are any number of things that David is credited with, sort of marketing and broadcasting innovations, basketball innovations, that were all self-taught. So David was a kind of guy who really liked to understand what people wanted to do. And um, he was always engaged in whatever was happening. As you guys are familiar, typical venture capitalists, of which we were not, typical venture capitalists have a portfolio, and their hope is that if they have 15 companies, two of them will break through, one big. In David's case, it was DEFCON 4 when any of the companies were having any problems. So we were not the most realistic in terms of the approach, but that was kind of what made David unique and interesting. The other thing is David was famous for his temper and and for yelling and screaming and carrying on. And once retired, he liked to break that out. And a lot of the uh, young entrepreneurs sort of enjoyed being on the other side of it just because they had heard about it in legend, but he didn't really have his heart in it the same way. He'd reduce you to rubble in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, you know, with more gusto than he did before. But, and I think you guys may have remembered, like he masked his phone number. So when you got a call from him, it said no caller ID. And then, and frequently you'd pick up the phone and he'd be mad about something. So it it was kind of this show. And um, David administered the tough love and there was no detail that was too small for him. He was really, really unique. And he loved these guys and they loved him. And, you know, David was a total win for these little companies because he was a celebrity. So he was perfect in their press release. There wasn't anything he wouldn't do for them. He'd pick up the phone. He'd create meetings, do, do et cetera. I would hear from him Saturday night, you know, Sunday, first thing. Like he, he, he was constantly into it. And I think that he found a sort of extension for his passion and interests with these little companies. The other thing I'd say is these companies were really diverse. His choice of founders, super interesting, not standard. I I vividly remember the case of Whoop. Not only did he back a very young CEO. When I met Will Ahmed, he was like 28 years old. I believe he's 31 now. So very young. But also... Will had a hardware product, and the conventional wisdom among VCs was you just don't invest in hardware. We would get lectured that it's not what we do, it's you look at software. And David enjoyed being a contrarian. And if we look at Whoop's success, you know, two years ago, Whoop was had a valuation of $200 million. A year ago, they did a round of financing that valued them at a billion. 
And as most people have read, SoftBank has invested in them, and they just announced a new financing, $200 million with a valuation of $3.6 billion, and they've just unveiled a new product. So they've, they've taken off as sort of a combination of hardware and software. And I would just say that David was visionary like that. He could just see it. So as you've had opportunities come your way, both then and now, what are some of the most important criteria that you're looking at to say, this is something I want to go forward with? It always starts with who the people are. I'm really interested in the entrepreneur. I'm interested in his or her passion, background, vision. How big is the opportunity if successful? David got involved in some seed situations. I haven't really done that. I'm looking for, I look at companies where they've gotten started and they've already, they have already demonstrated something. And I try to bet on the horse in a field that I'm super interested in. So through a friend named Randy Ecker, who ran a company called Exos, I met Blake Lawrence, who's the young CEO of Open Doors. Very, very bright guy. And it was clear to me, this is before the launch of name, image, and likeness rights, July 1st just passed. It was evident to me a year ago that he was building a really interesting mousetrap and understood a lot of what was going on. And that his opportunity is only going to get bigger when NIL rolled out, which it did. I have a real interest in sort of metadata businesses. And what I mean by that is it's not just what they do, it's what they know. So in the case of Open Doors, for instance, Blake had been telling me for a while that one of the interesting thing in college athletics was how successful the female college athletes were going to be, which sort of um, counterintuitive and not necessarily what the conventional wisdom was. The conventional wisdom was name, image, and likeness was all going to be about college football and the top men's college basketball players. And it's turned out much differently. So businesses that observe a tremendous amount of of actual sport fan or athlete behavior can chronicle that, can can help tell the story of what's happening and why. I find that stuff fascinating. So I try to find areas that I believe are going to be big and getting involved with a company is almost like, it's almost like graduate school for me. David was adamant he only wanted to be an investor and advisor, okay? He only wanted to invest in companies that he'd have a personal involvement with. He wasn't like, you know, you could bring him something great, and if they just wanted him for a press release, he wasn't interested. doesn't matter how big the thing was. And I'm the same way. Like, I'm, this is how I'm choosing to spend my time. And, and hopefully, you know, if you talk to companies that have worked with me, hopefully they say, well, John's engaged and interested and is trying to help us build value. That's, that's what I try to do. John, with a company like Whoop, which has just exploded, and we had actually Will on the podcast last week, does your role as an advisor change when a company, you know, gets so big? And is it, is it a different kind of relationship you have as these companies are more mature, different kinds of things that you do to help them? Totally. And it's not, it isn't something that's easy to predict. In my old job, I did my old job at ESPN for so long that I could tell you, okay, on May 7th, this is what we'll be working on. The assignment and issues with Whoop have really varied 
over the last several months. Obviously, I just try to be helpful. I try to be a student of what they're doing. And I try to bring the value of the experience, contacts, et cetera, that I have from my background. With a lot of these companies, you have brilliant people who don't necessarily have a lot of experience dealing with a whole host of business issues that come when you're successful. You know, Chris, you worked for years at the NFL, and there's a whole set of things that you have to deal with in an organization like the NFL or ESPN that having managed your way through them or seen ways that these things could be handled better or worse help inform you. In many cases, the individual companies are talking to me about how they should manage personnel issues, how we dealt with with those kinds of issues. So it runs the gamut with Whoop, and Will covered it in his uh, 4.0 event earlier this week. What Will was really interested in doing was finding a way to bring Whoop data to sports broadcasts. And it's and he's done it through what the company calls Whoop Live, basically the live, live, live display of heartbeat recovery, strain data on sports broadcast. So I spent most of my time working on that, but that's a project that continues to evolve as well. We've now done a few of them. So what's the practical effect of them? What what are the implications? All of these things. So it varies. It's all interesting. And because I choose the companies based upon the people, it's been rewarding to me, not just professionally, but it's been rewarding to me on a personal basis. Another hot company on your client list, of course, is Overtime, which did a uh, big fundraise and is now really meaningfully expanding from its traditional digital media business into this new Overtime Elite Basketball League and becoming a competition entity in that sense. What do you see as the uh, prospects of uh, Overtime Elite, uh, particularly as it does that parallel to this whole redefinition of college sports? I believe Dan Porter and Zach Wiener and their team are really smart. We used to say like in technology and with startups, the hardest thing is to create products that people love. You could always hire people like the three of us to help take a successful product and make it more successful or teach young companies how to make money. But the hardest thing is to develop a product that people love. And over time from the beginning, in terms of its relationship with athletes, the kinds of content that they wanted to watch and create, being part, being sort of like, you know, being sort of part of the audience themselves, they've done an exceptional job. Their timing has always been good and they are aggressive thinkers. And we're seeing a big transformation in college athletics. To me, many of these things are, are for the best name, image, and likeness, giving student-athletes an ability to generate some income based upon the value that they bring. And in the case of basketball, where one and done has been the rule with the NBA and men's college basketball for high school players who really just, who really just want to go to the NBA, the overtime elite similar to the G League provides a meaningful opportunity and difference. And They're not resting on their laurels. You'll see that the basketball competitions will be unique. They will have many features that I think will be mimicked over time. The I'll never forget when Zion Williamson enrolled at Duke University, Zion's 
Zion's social following was bigger than that of Duke University basketball. And so Zion was sort of a pioneer on Overtime's platform. But you now have another couple of years of kids all following that example. And they're better known than many professional athletes. And they reach and connect with young audiences that are very, very difficult to get to traditional pay television. So I think they have a hell of a chance to be successful. I think they could do their model potentially in other sports. They've done some stuff in football. They've done some stuff in internet, in soccer, international football. So I'm bullish on them and they're really bright and a very, very bright team. John, another hot area is this uh, category of digital collectibles and NFTs. I'm sure you've looked at a lot of business opportunities there. What's your perspective on that emerging opportunity? I actually am doing a one-on-one interview for a conference coming up with uh, Rohan, the um, CEO of Dapper Labs. So I've been fascinated for the last several years by blockchain technology. Not so much the speculation around the different currencies, which of course is, while it's hard to separate the two, what I'm most interested in is this concept of an immutable ledger And in the case of NFTs, digital scarcity, the ability to create a unique digital good. And the NFTs, the timing of NFTs is directly related to COVID. It's directly related to the STEM checks that a lot of young people received. But it's a really novel concept, a digital collectible taking aspects of video games and now applying it to other, to whether it's artwork or trading cards or video highlights. And similar to the SPACs, which we'll talk about as well, you've seen a boom cycle. I believe we will see a bust cycle, but I believe there's something really here because a digital asset that's unique that can be owned by an individual or have fractional ownership, that can have business rules attached to it as sort of a smart contract. These are going to proliferate and redefine sort of sports business, you know, this decade going on. I believe all tickets, for instance, to sporting events are going to be some form of NFT, you know, in the future, which will enable sports leagues or other operators to more directly get involved with the resale of their ticket. The um, In the case of Dapper Labs and NBA Top Shot, it's been fascinating how the creation of a superior, easy user interface always wins. For any of you who've spent any time working on blockchain crypto projects, you always strangle, get strangled by the 37 steps it takes to set up your wallet and all this other nonsense. What Steve Jobs would say, all these things that should be abstracted away. And that's what Dapper Labs has done. Interestingly, the vast preponderance of purchases of NFTs on Dapper Labs, NBA Top Shot, are all done by credit card. So that's a real breakthrough that they've done. They've made it easy. They've made, you know, they They've gotten involved with the players. They were shrewd in terms of starting with the NBA as an innovative organization. So I'm bullish on NFTs long term that they're going to be important and unique. Do I think 
a bunch of people bought vastly overpriced assets within the last year and will grow to regret that? Yes. Will there be recriminations and worse around that? Yes. But it's not unusual. You know, Chris and I both worked in the sports internet when the bubble burst. And I'll, I'll never forget David Hill, who is the president of, of Fox Sports, one of the brilliant guys in sports television, announced at some conference I was at that the internet was the public library, the equivalent of the public library. It'll never be anything. That's where the mindset was when things went bust, but we see where we are today. The important thing, though, is this concept of digital scarcity that you can own. It's really unique. It's just um, phenomenal. You mentioned uh, the SPAC situation before, the special purpose acquisition companies, of course, and you're involved in one yourself uh, that you put together uh, late last year, 895th Avenue Partners. How is that going? Where are you at? What can you tell us about how that process is unfolding? So I have a friend named Adam Rothstein, who is a brilliant uh, investor in Israeli startups and had been managing the money of one of David Stern's best friends. And so Adam used to come over to David's office. He'd have a turkey sandwich. He'd take some abuse from David. And we became friends. One of the amusing things with David was David would spout all the jargon, VC and financing, and didn't understand any of it. So we would wheel Adam over to actually explain to us return on invested capital and, and all of the other terminology that we purported, we purported to know. So Adam and I became friends. And what Adam, Adam was fascinated by sports media and how things happen. And so that was a business certainly that David and I had background in. And the first year in COVID, Adam got involved with three SPACs that were successful. And I'm defining success by he was he he joined in a syndicate that raised the money to create the shell company they identified a target company to merge with private company and then when the merger happened the DSPAC, the stock the resulting stock traded over $10 in a spac when it goes public it opens at $10 and then you hope it you hope it goes up in his case he did three of them that all went up so those were three successful things he called me to inquire about doing a new kind of SPAC. This was, you know, July of, of 2020. He said his epiphany was that he wanted to do a SPAC where there was only one finance guy, and that was him. And the rest of the people would be either operating or former operating people. He said, there are three reasons I want to do this. One, because you guys are in the field, will automatically have deal flow and credibility. Second, you guys actually want to work as opposed to most of the people that I work with on SPACs. Third, we could tell a story where we could bring value to the public company. We could sit on boards. We could take positions. We could open doors. We could do any of the, any of the things that, that, that are possible. You know, we, we'd be an operating SPAC. And he said, here's my conceit, 895th Avenue Partners. 895th Avenue is the mythical office of the Avengers in the Disney Marvel movies. He says, will you come and be my cartoon superhero for sports media? I said, listen, I'm skeptical about all this stuff, notwithstanding the fact that you've been successful, but yes. And, and that's quite, it was quite an introduction. And what I thought was, at worst, I would learn a lot about what goes on here and I would meet a bunch of other interesting people because if Adam was involved and he approached me, I was very, very interested as to who the other people were going to be. 
And third, if we had enough smart people, maybe we would do something successful. I was skeptical because at the time Adam reached out, A-Rod has a SPAC, SPAC has, Shaq has a SPAC. It just had all of like, it wasn't quite initial coin offering, but it, it had all of that sort of like hot air inflation that you figure by the time you get in is right at the time it all goes kaput. And, you know, the experience say over the last 14 months has been better than I could have hoped. When I was at Disney, uh, we came very close to purchasing BuzzFeed. And I've known Jonah Peretti for years and admired his work. And so when BuzzFeed was identified as a potential target, it sparked a lot of interest for me because I had a lot of points of view about digital media companies, Jonah as a leader and visionary, et cetera. And so we came to a deal with BuzzFeed and we're going to take them public in October. The whole process, of course, has been an odyssey. As Chris knows, a lot of the a lot of the factors of SPACs, such as the private investment, the pipe, you know, it's like it was a bull market. Now it's now it's bust. So we, we've had to we've had to make a lot of different a lot of different modifications and changes. But quality of the people involved in this very very high, thinking very very high, and. In the case of BuzzFeed, in a difficult environment for digital media companies, BuzzFeed's going to be able to go public, have its own currency, be able to do roll-ups. They just announced their private company, but they announced their, their last quarter prior to going public, and revenue is way up, so it's a good story. And j- just a really, really interesting learning experience for me. We're going to do another one that will announce um, that will announce. Uh, announced later this fall. So I'm, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. And the, the, the last thing I'd say is one, one of the ways it works is even if you're in part of the sponsor group, you're, you're essentially locked up for 12 months. So once BuzzFeed goes public, whatever holding I have, I can't do anything with that for at least a year after that, which I think is good. And I'm motivated to try to create value. So what's on my mind is, you know, it's going to be very interesting, you know, when 12 months comes up, whatever decision I make, because I'm really inclined to hope that my money and my help could help grow the thing as opposed to move on to something else. I'm like, you know, Chris was this way too, but I'm a builder. I'm very focused on that. John, you, you've mentioned you learned a lot along the way in terms of the process, the SPAC market, et cetera. What advice would you give to a sports executive like you who was considering now whether to be part of a SPAC group? Is there things that you learned or advice that you wish you had had a year ago that you think would be helpful to somebody considering it now? Again, I feel very fortunate in the way this has played out. So I'd say um, it starts off with having a lead person who really understands public markets and the process. Adams, besides the fact that he's smart, besides the fact that he has a great temperament, Adam is just kind of encyclopedic on all of the terms, issues. He just knows it. So I think it's very difficult to get involved with this and be like a babe in the woods. I don't care. You, you could have surrounded me with a bunch of other brilliant operating people and we would have been lost without Adam. So I think that's one thing. Second, and this is consistent in what we're talking about, it's the people involved that really make this valuable or not. And third, 
I think having some sort of thesis or approach that's tied into your background and what you're passionate about. You know, if Adam said, I'm going to get involved and we're going to do autonomous trucks, I would have said, sounds great, but it's not really me. But if he says, we want to focus on media, sports, advertising, technology, that's great. So those things I think are important. Having a ringleader who really understands the mechanics having a good group of people, and then having a focus that plays to your strengths. Well, clearly a lot happening that we're going to continue to track here. But for now, we want to thank John Kosner from uh, Kosner Media for spending this time with us on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly. We want to thank John Kozner from Kozner Media again for spending that time with us here. And uh, shifting our focus now to the start of the NFL season here, we sort of knew the uh, the league was poised for some big things here. We've been talking for months about all of the offseason business that they were doing, new domestic TV rights deals, new global data rights deal, new international play plan, expanded regular season new uh, domestic sports book deals, on and on the list goes here. Um, and we had some interesting markers that came out uh, in and around all of that activity as, as the season began on the 9th and then the full fr- Sunday on the 12th. The American Gaming Association came out with some interesting survey data a couple uh, days before the start of the season indicating uh, that they were projecting a record 45.2 million Americans that were planning to bet on the NFL this coming season. That's up 36% from last year. And one of the things that really sort of jumped out to me is that we're still in this really young, immature market in terms of uh, American betting. You now do have legal wagering, sports wagering in in, uh, 23 states, District of Columbia, more coming quickly. But a lot of those are smaller states. Yeah, a lot of your big, heavy, uh, high population states, New York, California, Texas, Florida, so forth, are not really in with full mature online betting here. So this is a big number, but one that still sort of has a great deal of upside looking ahead. I, I agree, Eric, that we are still in the early innings. You know, we may see New York toward the end of the football season. We may see Florida later this football season. Uh, another kind of big headline over the past couple of weeks was the additional four sports books that the NFL signed, making it a total of seven. And it looked like they had kind of two tiers the first tier of the three partners, and then the next tier of four. What right. jumped out at me this week is it looks like there's yet another tier. Because Genius Sports, the official sports data company or partner of the NFL, has done deals with companies like Barstool, 888, uh, potentially others to provide NFL official data, not the same level of rights that the seven others have received. But here again, there are even more sports books that are getting into the mix in some way having some access to NFL content. Yeah. And just to sort of clarify those tiers, the uh, the top uh, the top of the funnel there, DraftKings, FanDuel, Caesars, they get to use league and team marks in their advertising. And there's really a full deep integration there. The other four, Fox Bet, Win Bet, uh, Points Bet, Help me on the fourth year. MGM. Yes, they, thank you. They get uh, the rights to buy into the uh, advertised during the live games here. 
and then you have this other group that you uh, correctly mentioned that are just buying the the official feed that this is the uh, the best uh, most robust most real time data feed and so n- they're now sort of within that funnel as well and there's more to come sure and again as the league sort of figures out all of the opportunities in this still emerging space and what this still emerging space has done is also benefited another key component of league operations of course the domestic media rights holders who are uh, you know serving as the uh, primary individual revenue source for the league and will continue to be with the new set of 10-year deals kicking in in 2023 they're all reporting just banner ad sales go- heading into the season and not surprising uh, a lot of sort of tailwinds be, um, benefiting them that the NFL continues to uh, expand its uh, dominance over all of American media. You've got this new category opening up here. And even with some controls on that, that there's only going to be six sportsbook ads during the course of any given NFL game, that competition for those coveted slots among those seven approved companies, you know, they did the math just right here that you've got seven approved companies, six slots in any given game, and that just creates a, a robust competition for that ad time. And we're just seeing record uh, numbers, most notably NBC Sports, which will do Super Bowl uh, 56 in, uh, in February. They're essentially sold out of the game. They're holding a couple of slots back, but their most recent sales have been at six and a half million dollars for 30 seconds, far and away a record for for this event. Yeah, it's really been a great run for the NFL and for their various partners. And in part, this is because, as we've discussed a number of times, the NFL ratings have held up better than many other sports, but more importantly, than any other kind of form of TV or entertainment. So it's becoming an even more, relatively speaking, powerful vehicle than it was before. Super Bowl is still that one mega event. And as you pointed out, the NFL and its partners are very good at creating, you know, seven, seven, uh, you know, six seats and seven bidders. And that's just the musical chairs game that drives up competition for the precious inventory and and drives up the price. So I think they've done a good job with that as well. And you would imagine going forward here, then that all of these powerful factors are just going to continue to drive the team valuations up and up. We've had, you know, we've had some, you know, recent folks come in, um, but as, as teams, you know, ultimately maybe uh, heading towards the market here going forward. I imagine any sort of notion of a record valuation, you know, any expectation you have, you just take the over on it. I I agree with that to some degree. Obviously, the underlying business of the league is going extremely well. I do wonder whether at some point the league might need to start considering private equity investors for some of the LP stakes because we've seen Arctos and others be very active in some other leagues. And I think having some of those bidders in the mix to drive up the prices of the LP stakes could ultimately be helpful. It doesn't seem like the NFL is going to do that anytime soon, but that may also be something that down the line they consider as a way of continuing to grow valuations. Yeah, and particularly as these, you know, we see the further maturation of the uh, American uh, sports wagering market, these new TV deals kicking in, you know, there's plenty of rich people out there, but, you know, trying to come up with five, six, seven billion dollars, whatever the number is ultimately going to be for one of these teams, particularly if it's in a big market, that's just going to be really hard to do without what the kinds of things that you're describing. I mean, you know, five, six billion dollars, it's still a big number. And, you know, coming up with creative ways to get to that number, you're going to need that. 
Yeah, it's it's certainly tough selling a team for three, four, five billion dollars. It's kind of even tougher though to sell a third of a team for a billion dollars when someone puts that kind of money out for effectively not control or a very expensive set of season tickets. So that's where I think these these arctoses of the world could really fill an important role. But again, the NFL doesn't appear ready for that yet. And look, the, the business is going terrific. So I think they're going to keep keep with that. So let's shift gears to another big deal that uh, came out here just on the uh, eve of the start of the season here. Uh, Verizon, the the American uh, telco giant, they've been a big partner for more than a decade uh, with the NFL. They've just signed another uh, big extension, another 10 years for that league tie, estimated value somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars. Uh, but what was interesting there is they sort of shifted gears and where the sort of operational and activation approach on this uh, new term is going to be, whereas this thing sort of started as sort of a combination media traditional sponsorship deal with a pretty heavy focus on mobile streaming rights. This is all about 5G now and using that enhanced wireless technology to power all sorts of different things, whether it be a fan experience thing, a coaching thing, a broadcast enhancement, uh, what have you. And it's it's all really centered around 5G. And, I, and it was pretty clever on, on a number of things where you really can sort of take an existing league partner, not only continue to extract a big number and keep them in the fold, but really sort of kind of pivot on the fly here and be able to take this new term in a whole different direction. Absolutely. And a lot of this is, I expect, driven by the fact that Verizon divested Verizon Media slash oh, yeah, Yahoo. Yeah. So, so that's now over with Apollo. And yep. so Verizon's focus is 5G and that technology capability is important in terms of stadiums and enhancing not only the fan experience, but they're talking about how the technology can help with players and coaches and, and other kinds of data in real time. So I do think they're trying to enhance this the stadium experience. And I think, as you've noted, done a creative job of, of kind of morphing the relationship in one that works for both parties. Yeah. And what I'll be really interested to see is to what degree this new term with Verizon sort of helps amplify the whole analytics revolution. If there is one coming within football that there, I think there's a pretty solid case to be made that compared certainly to baseball, but even basketball and some other sports of football has not been as aggressive on this sort of numerical analysis, whether it be in a coaching construct or just a sort of statistics culture within this within football that, you know, certainly we're counting numbers as it relates to fantasy football and such, but you know, the kinds of things that we've seen on, you know, on next gen stats and those kinds of things so far, it's been pretty modest compared to the other leagues here. And, uh, and I'm really curious to see if this new term again with Verizon sort of helps accelerate the pace of that. We, where we really start to see this much deeper and broader culture of analytics within football. It, it seems like that was certainly one of the objectives of the extension. I think this also relates to ultimately the sensors and the uniform that I believe Zebra provides and, and other kinds of on-field and in-helmet and in-shoulder pad kind of technology. And that is all going to improve and, and, and get better over time. And you're right. I don't think in football it's taken on the same level of importance as we've seen it, let's say, in baseball or basketball. But I do think there is that potential over the next three to five years to have that happen. 
So while this is all happening, you've got a couple of other kind of big sort of potential deals hanging out there for the NFL. They still have not sold the next term of their Sunday ticket rights. And as we've discussed previously on the podcast, they are looking for potential investment partners for their in-house assets with NFL Media, NFL Network. Do you see any particular intersection there but with this new term with Verizon and what they're doing in and around 5G? Does that sort of reshape the uh, potential landscape of those deals? I think it does, Eric, in the sense that now these mobile streaming rights might be able to be combined with whatever is happening in Sunday Ticket and NFL Media and perhaps offer a broader set of rights or opportunities for a potential partner. Again, I think the NFL, from what I can see, is is exploring all options, is going to be really smart and strategic. They've engaged Goldman Sachs on the NFL media piece to find strategic options. But I do think the more flexibility they have in these rights, especially live streaming rights, you know, the better outcome they may have with, with certain partners that would want to pay for those or partner with those in, in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and and that's a really interesting point here because, uh, and we've alluded to this in, in prior weeks here, that the, the Sunday ticket uh, package in particular for as long-running, successful as it's been, it is just so prime, in my opinion, for just a complete rethink and a refresh that there's a lot of complaints that, you know, as of traditionally, it was originally a satellite TV-based product with a very high price point, both on a residential and commercial basis here, but you sort of break this up. Up, tie it in with potentially some of these other rights as you describe and really kind of rethink what the value proposition is going to be both on a on an individual level and then for all the sports bars and such on a commercial level that rely on this product as well that I just I think it's a 20th century late 20th century product that just needs a 21st century refresh and I think you know what you're talking about here with a different sort of approach and packaging of the rights you can get to that place. The other thing I wonder, Eric, when you talk about non-game programming is will there be opportunities to even better leverage the NFL Films Library and all of that archival content? And we're now looking at an era of you know Netflix and Paramount Plus and all kinds of, obviously, ESPN Plus, DAZN. You know, are there going to be services that can be created that tap into that library in greater depth and then use things like the NFL Network or Sunday Ticket in a way to promote some kind of subscription service? Again, I'm just speculating, but it seems like there are a lot of assets here in play and, and maybe can be maximized with the right partnerships. Yeah. And you just think about, again, looking at the competitive landscape, baseball has done some really, I think, some really good forward-looking things in terms of its uh, archival library. And you get on MLB.com and the searches and the kind of granular detail you can get in terms of mining that highlight library. It's so so powerful now. And some of the work that they're doing with Google and others to, to do that is really been, you know, first rate. And I think, again, to your point that, you know, we all grew up watching all of those, uh, you know, John Facenda clips here that I think there's a huge opportunity here as well for the NFL. Yeah, and I, I think we'll see more of that. And again, I don't know if all of this is going to get sorted out over the next couple of months or we're really looking at a, a year process for all these deals. But I do think it's it seems to be a top priority for them. So let's uh, shift gears from media and technology to the the in-person experience here. And, uh, you know, one of the big noteworthy things here with this uh, Bucks cowboys opener, this was actually the first fully attended 
NFL game since the pandemic. We haven't had one since uh, Super Bowl in February of 2020. And you know we've had a number of partial uh, attendance situations. The last year's Super Bowl was partially attended with a whole lot of cutouts here. And even the preseason with some of the more recent preseason with the loosened uh, attendance restrictions, a lot of people don't go to the preseason game. So this Bucks cowboys game was really the first time that we had you know, in a long, long time here, this uh, fully attended situation here. And it's going to really be interesting to see how this continues to bear out as we continue to go through some tough situations with COVID and, and the Delta variant and uh, some really stubborn rates in terms of uh, cases and, and hospitalizations and deaths here. And, you know, the Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, has talked a lot about having to be sort of nimble and and react on the fly. And, you know, both from an operational football operational standpoint and from a fan standpoint, I think we're going to see a lot of changes in what we now know on week one here as we get to midseason or late season. That's not necessarily going to be the case here. Absolutely, Eric. And I think the good news for the NFL, if if there is good news and in, in what is a really difficult situation, is the games are outside and you also do have only eight games. So it and it is not a huge, huge part of the revenue. It's meaningful, but it's not like basketball, baseball, or or hockey in terms of just the the import of it. So I do think, regardless of what solutions are implemented, the, the NFL is going to come out just fine. What I wonder from a more of a fan involvement engagement standpoint is from a on the field competitive standpoint. Do, does the home team advantage return to a greater degree this year? It'd be interesting to see the stats from last year as to whether home field meant as much last year when there were no fans versus this year, how that ties into the way people think about betting and a whole bunch of other issues. So there are some competitive dynamics that come into this as well. Well, the Buccaneers from this first game, they would, I'm sure they would probably tell you that the uh, having it, it was, was a very loud and lively crowd. I, I'm sure they would tell you that it did, it had some impact there. And so it's a very good point and something that we're going to continue to bear watching here. Now, amidst all of this, we've had a handful of clubs, notably uh, the Raiders, Seahawks, and Saints, that have put in their own local policies. And this is where the NFL has been very clear, like the other leagues, that they're going to do their thing from a league level and have it sort of marry up with state and local policy here. And what has happened in a number of these individual markets is that local policy is coming and layered in as well. And as it relates to some of these facilities that have public management or public ownership, uh, that much more so that uh, you have these additional vaccine requirements to get into the building. And so it's going to really be interesting to see where we're at three teams right now out of the 32, if we're going to see more and more, if these Delta numbers continue to be troublesome. It, it would seem to me uh, a good assumption that we're going to see more stadiums that will sort of move to this uh, level. Certainly the indoor stadiums as we start with basketball and hockey. The other issue that we talked about last week, Eric, I think, or the week before on the podcast was the players and how many of them are vaccinated and what are the rep- repercussions for them not being vaccinated a couple of days ago, the president of, of the United States basically said any employer of 100 or more needs to have his, uh, his or her employees uh, vaccinated. So I don't know how these federal laws and local laws are going to intersect with what's happening in each market and what the players want to do. So this is still an evolving discussion that, that we'll have to keep an eye on. Absolutely. And so as we close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we want to do our, our look ahead as to what's catching our eye in the space. And Chris, I will start with you. 
Well, since it's our NFL-themed week, Eric, I'll stick with the, the topic. And what I am looking forward to is uh, seeing what the NFL ultimately does in the NFT and crypto space. And those are related, but potentially two different things. There's the excitement of all of the NFT digital goods and assets. And then there's this crypto sponsorship category, which appears to be exploding in certain sports and lots of money being spent. It appears that the league is trying to put together a strategic game plan on this and not let the teams get too far out ahead of it. And, and really, there's been some reports that a pause has been put on some of those those local deals. But I'm really interested to see how the league tackles this new opportunity and how they exploit it both at the league level and club level. Yeah, and this and you can certainly speak to this as well, having been there, but this seems to be yet another instance of the NFL perhaps being late to the party, but be ending up as the far and away biggest player. And you think about where they were, you know, on legalized gambling. We're three years, you know, three years plus into this in the United States, and they were all the other leagues were signing deals straight away here. And where's the NFL? Where's the NFL? Where's the NFL? Well, as we've been talking here today, the NFL has got a lot of activity now in this space, and they took their time, they did their research, they synced up their market situation, they got their internal house in order, and they're now off to the races on this. And I would imagine something similar is going to play out with regard to the uh, the digital collectible crypto space for the NFL. Yeah, when you have the, the, the best IP and you have really strong management, you, you, you tend to get it right, even if you, do, if you don't get it first. So I think the league takes the, that kind of approach, which is let's do this right for the long run. And, uh, and that strategy has really worked across the board. Well, from my standpoint, I'm I'm continuing to pay a close eye on the uh, college sports landscape here, and we've talked about this as well in prior weeks. That a lot of change happening in that space here, and as we are taping this, we just had the expected announcement that the uh, Big Twelve Conference is going to be bringing in four new members, three of which previously with the American Athletic Conference to help uh, replace the void that's being created by Texas and Oklahoma going to the Southeastern Conference, and we have all been expecting this whole big realignment, musical chairs game, whatever you want to call it, for some time now. This is really going to start to heat up now because now the American is going to be looking for new members and the folks that they bring in, they're those old conferences. And so this is ultimately potentially going to involve dozens upon dozens of schools. The effect, the actual uh, um, effective dates for these shifts are still one year, two year, three years away, depending on the situation here. But we're, we're at the beginning of a very quickly accelerating reshuffling in the entire college sports landscape. And it's something that's just now really gathering ahead of steam. And I don't think, Eric, we yet really know the repercussions of, of all of it. Obviously, we talked about media rights and, and sort of the big picture competitive issues, but there are a lot of vendors and companies that work with these conferences that are now a little bit of an, in a holding pattern because the conferences are not sure what's happening. They don't want to make deals, who's in, who's out. So there will be a little bit of a consternation here as all of this gets sorted out. Ultimately, as we saw a decade ago when the first big wave happened, it all sorted itself out. But I, but I do think we'll have some concerns over the next several months. Without question and something we'll be continuing to track and discuss here. Uh, but for now, that'll do it for this week's episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.